Chapter Sixteen of the Mystery of the Pinckney Draft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mystery of the Pinckney Draft by Charles C. Knott. Chapter Sixteen of Pinckney Personally. Pinckney was in the fourth generation of a family which had been distinguished for more than one hundred years for its public services. He had been elected to the provincial legislature of South Carolina before he had come of age, and he had made himself before the sitting of the convention a prominent member of the Congress of the Confederated States. He had a clearer apprehension of the actual needs of American nationality than any other member of the convention. This may be seen in his observations and in his speech of the 25th of June. There is a passage in that speech in which anticipating the farewell address of Washington and the peace policy of Jefferson, he looks forward through the ensuing century of the Constitution and depicts the practical blessings which it was to bring to the American people with a clearness and accuracy that is extraordinary. Our true situation appears to be this, a new, extensive country containing within itself the materials for forming a government capable of extending to its citizens all the blessings of civil and religious liberty, capable of making them happy at home. This is the great end of Republican establishments. We mistake the object of our government if we hope or wish that it is to make us respectable abroad. Conquests or superiority among other powers is not, or ought not ever to be, the object of Republican systems. If they are sufficiently active and energetic to rescue us from contempt and preserve our domestic happiness and security, it is all we can expect from them. It is more than almost any other government ensures to its citizens. Pinckney's experience in the Congress of the Confederation made him despise the existing federal government and undervalue the local authority of the states. He came into the convention its most extreme federalist, more so even than Hamilton. As he said in the observations, in the federal councils, each state ought to have a weight in proportion to its importance, and no state is justly entitled to greater. The senatorial districts into which the Union is to be divided, in his plan, will be so apportioned as to give to each its due weight, and the Senate calculated on this as it ought to in every government to represent the wealth of the nation. The next provision in his draft, is intended to give the United States in Congress not only a revision of the legislative acts of each state, but a negative upon all such as shall appear to them improper. The idea that has been so long and falsely entertained of each being a sovereign state must be given up, for it is absurd to suppose that there can be more than one sovereignty within a government. Upon a clear and comprehensive view of the relative situation of the Union and its members, we shall be convinced of the policy of concentring in the federal head a complete supremacy in the affairs of government. In the convention, Pinckney moved that the members of the lower house should be chosen by the legislatures 
of the several states. But this was the one thing which he conceded to the several states. The Senate was to be chosen by the House of Delegates, and what is more significant, the Senate was not to represent states with the saving clause, each state shall be entitled to have at least one member in the Senate. Finally, he would strike an absolutely fatal blow at state sovereignty by providing, the legislature of the United States shall have the power to revise the laws of the several states that may be supposed to infringe the powers exclusively delegated by this Constitution to Congress, and to negative and annul such as do. Knowing as we do of Pinckney's youth, he was not yet thirty, and of Madison's poor opinion of him, it is desirable that we should know, if possible, what his contemporaries in the convention thought of him. William Pierce, the delegate from Georgia, who has left to us the anecdotes of Washington before quoted, noted at the time his impressions of the leading members of the convention. From these I select his sketches of four of the young members of the convention who had even then attained distinction. Edmund Randolph, Rufus King, Alexander Hamilton, and Charles Pinckney. Mr. Randolph is governor of Virginia, a young gentleman in whom unite all the accomplishments of the scholar and the statesman. He came forward with the postulata or first principles on which the convention acted, and he supported them with a force of eloquence and reasoning that did him great honor. He has a most harmonious voice, a fine person, and striking manners. Mr. King is a man much distinguished for his eloquence and great parliamentary talents. He was educated in Massachusetts, and is said to have good classical as well as legal knowledge. He has served for three years in the Congress of the United States with great and deserved applause, and is at this time high in the confidence and approbation of his countrymen. This gentleman is about thirty-three years of age, about five feet ten inches high, well-formed and handsome face, with a strong expressive eye and a sweet high-toned voice. In his public speaking there is something peculiarly strong and rich in his expression, clear and convincing in his arguments, rapid and irresistible at times in his eloquence, but he is not always equal. His action is natural, swimming, and graceful, but there is a rudeness of manner sometimes accompanying it. But take him to ensemble, he may with propriety be ranked among the luminaries of the present age. Colonel Hamilton is deservedly celebrated for his talents. He is a practitioner of the law and reputed to be a finished scholar. To a clear and strong judgment he unites the ornaments of fancy, and whilst he is able, convincing, and engaging in his eloquence, the heart and head sympathize in approving him. Yet there is something too feeble in his voice to be equal to the strains of oratory. It is my opinion that he is a convincing speaker, that than a blazing orator. Colonel Hamilton requires time to think. He inquires into every part of his subject 
with the searchings of philosophy, and when he comes forward he comes highly charged with interesting matter. There is no skimming over the surface of a subject with him. He must sink to the bottom to see what foundation it rests on. His language is not always equal, sometimes didactic, like Bolingbroke's, at others light and tripping like Stern's. His eloquence is not so defensive as to trifle with the senses, but he rambles just enough to strike and keep up the attention. He is about thirty-three years old, of small stature, and lean. His manners are tinctured with stiffness, and sometimes with a degree of vanity that is highly disagreeable. Mr. Charles Pinckney is a young gentleman of the most promising talents. He is, although only twenty-four, twenty-nine, years of age, in possession of a very great variety of knowledge. Government, law, history, and philosophy are his favorite studies, but he is intimately acquainted with every species of polite learning, and has a spirit of application and industry beyond most men. He speaks with neatness and perspicuity, and treats every subject as fully, without running into prolixity, as it requires. He has been a member of Congress, and served in that body with ability and éclat. William Pierce of Georgia, 3 American History Review, 313. In this material world of cause and effect, there sometimes seem to be recurring fatalities which attend individuals that needlessness has not caused, and that foresight could not have prevented, a fate of fire or flood or shipwreck, of good fortune or of bad fortune, of successes or of casualties of escapes or of disasters, a fate that fastens upon an individual and cannot be shaken off. The fate assigned to Pinckney seems to have been oblivion. Substantially, everything which he prized is gone. His house was one of the finest in Charleston, if not the finest, and it was destroyed. He believed his library to be the most valuable library in the South, and his great gallery to hold the rarest pictures in this country, yet but a few volumes remain of the one, and but two portraits of the other. His garden was the most beautiful in the state. It was his pride, his delight, and obliteration has indeed been its portion. Even the soil which bore him flowers and shrubbery and trees, and was laden with all the loveliness of semi-tropical vegetation, is gone, for it was carried away during the Civil War to make military defenses. At the beginning of this investigation I began to search for the papers of which Pinckney speaks in his letter to the Secretary of State papers which might throw new light on the framing of the Constitution, or solve the problem of the contents of the draft. In this search General McCready, of Charleston, kindly and sympathetically cooperated, but I soon received his assurance that the quest was not a new one for him, and that neither in the Historical Society of South Carolina, of which he was president, nor in the possession of his friends 
could a document or paper or even a letter be found at that time i desired to obtain a specimen of pinckney's early handwriting and accordingly carried my pursuit into the circle of his direct descendants but the sad reply came from his great-grandson mr charles pinckney of claremont south carolina that all of his papers and private manuscripts were destroyed in the great fire in charleston in 1861 and that his descendants possess no remains of his handwriting except the autographs in his books letters and papers of eminent men are constantly coming to the light from unexpected hiding places and there is the official correspondence in the state department and papers may exist in the public offices of south carolina but apart from these my investigation stops at a point where it must be said that not so much as a single line of the writing of charles pinckney now exists in seventeen eighty seven while pinckney was in the full possession of his youthful power and fortune and all those things which give a man a prestige above his fellows fate seems to have leaned forward and touched the instrument which was the supreme work of his life the draft of the constitution of the united states and to have set a seal upon the lips of every man who could testify as to its contents if ever there was a paper of which it might be predicted that it would survive its time and be securely kept that was the paper the convention was composed of the most orderly caretaking and reputable of men and the author of the draft was one of them the command of the convention was that its papers should be preserved the papers were placed in the custody of the most scrupulous of men and by him transferred to the official guardianship of a department of the government and there we might expect to find the draft of pinckney but fate had touched the great state paper and we find only that it had vanished mysteriously from the earth the following biographical sketch is by mr william s elliot of south carolina a grand-nephew of pinckney in the diploma by which the degree of doctor of laws was conferred upon him by the university of princeton new jersey it is expressly declared that it is conferred on account of high acquirements learning and ability and particularly for his distinguished services in congress and the federal convention from seventeen eighty seven to seventeen eighty nine he was traveling on the continent and on his return was elected governor of the state while governor he was a delegate too and made president of the state convention for forming the constitution in seventeen ninety one he was chosen a second time and in seventeen ninety six a third time governor of the state in seventeen ninety eight a senator in congress where he remained until eighteen o one when mr jefferson appointed him minister plenipotentiary to spain with power to treat for the purchase of louisiana and florida on his return in eighteen o six he was a fourth time honored with the position of governor of the state 
and he is the only citizen who has been so frequently elevated to the executive chair. From this period he retired from public life, until, in 1818, when he was elected under great party excitement to the United States House of Representatives by Charleston District, and he here closed his political life with his speech in opposition to the Missouri Compromise. Family tradition and genealogical history are the very reverse of amber, which, itself a valuable substance, usually includes trifles, whereas these trifles being in themselves very insignificant and trifling do, nevertheless, serve to perpetrate a great deal of what is rare and valuable in ancient manners, and to record many curious and minute facts, which could have been preserved and conveyed through no other medium. Charles Pinckney professed an exquisite appreciation of the beautiful in nature and in art. His collection of paintings, statuettes, medals, etc., rendered his house almost a museum. His fine library, occupying an entire suite of three large rooms, the floors and windows of which were kept richly carpeted and curtained, while the ceilings were decorated with classic representations, is supposed to have contained near twenty thousand of the rarest and choicest books, collected from every part of the continent, and in every language spoken in the enlightened world. Thomas Pinckney, who settled in South Carolina in 1687, was the father of two William, three Thomas, master in chancery, his son Colonel Charles Pinckney, his son Governor Charles Pinckney, his son Honorable Henry L. Pinckney. A life of Charles Pinckney was prepared and in the possession of the Honorable Henry L. Pinckney, for revision and addition. With it were his valuable papers. The fire of 1861, which desolated the city of Charleston, destroyed almost everything, and this, and the former essay, are compiled from many stray notes, mutilated manuscripts, and a few papers still in our possession. A very strange and melancholy feeling overtakes us as we search the remains of Charles Pinckney. Here is a man upon whom heaven appears to have showered its gifts. Distinguished in ancestry, possessing fine intellect, vigorous health, and large fortune, with his political ambition fully gratified, of refined tastes and cultivation linking his name successfully and eminently with his day and his race, and yet here are his memorials in a few tattered bits of paper, scarcely decipherable. His ashes are in the family burying ground. The spot is known. No stone, however, marks his final resting place. His house in Charleston years ago passed into the hands of the stranger, and has been torn down. The very earth has been removed, and now forms one of the fortifications of White Point Battery, erected during the late war for the defense of the city of Charleston. The library is broken and scattered. 
the picture of lady hamilton and his own portrait are the only two that we know of that remain of his once splendid gallery the beautiful grounds of fee farm have disappeared and the plough runs its furrows through the grove and the graveyard dubose review april second eighteen sixty six end of chapter sixteen